Welcome to Embargo, the podcast reaching intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here as always with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole on this lovely Monday morning. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Trying to get through the spring and Strasburg's injury, but we'll, we'll see if we can get through that. Yeah, exactly. We uh, and And also I should... Uh, I should add, today is Tim's birthday. I will not be singing, but for anybody who wants to send Tim birthday wishes, please, please do. Um, and we will not be disclosing. It is confidential information how old Tim is, so we won't be disclosing that it or is. discussing that it on is. the it's program. It's a carefully guarded secret. Um, you have to have a top secret classification clearance in order to find out. Exactly, exactly. Um, so welcome back to Embargoed. Happy to have everybody be back with us again. Uh, as per usual, the last couple of weeks have a lot has happened, uh, in, notably uh, with respect to Russia, where we're going to spend a lot of time today. Um, so uh, we always say at least there were no coups in the last two weeks. So that's always a good thing, but uh, a lot, lot going on. Um, so we're going we're gonna to cover a lot of ground today. Um, as usual, we're not here discussing, uh, we're not giving legal advice. We're not discussing confidential information. All opinions are mine and Tim's. If you don't like them, they are our fault. Uh, and as usual, if you're a fan of the pod, please subscribe. You can get us, you can catch us anywhere you get your pod content or on YouTube. Um, and we will, uh, we're, we're very happy to be back again. As I said, uh, thanks again to everybody for comments and feedback on the last episode um we're doing a this is a heavy russia china episode today although with us with a little bit of iran we we obviously spent a lot of time in iran the last time um but given what's going on the last couple weeks uh we're we're spending a lot of time uh covering russia today and and some china some china stories as well so um let me just run through the roadmap here as we are about to get started so obviously top top issue uh, no question, the new executive order that came out last week um, targeting Russia. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that to get started here at the top and all of the um, a few different threads relating to that, um, as I think there's there's just a lot to unpack there. Um, we're going to check back in with JCPOA 2.0 in particular with respect to what happened right after we recorded the last time, which is... Israel apparently launched a, an attack on Natanz uh, in an effort to perhaps derail the talks, but um, doesn't seem that that's going to happen, at least not in the short term. So we'll, we'll check in on that. Um, and then the, the, the final big topic we're going to cover today is, is an interesting one and one that we are most certainly going to come back to in the future, which is um, the... I think coming together and the coverage that's happened recently with respect to China's central bank offering um, virtual currency uh, and what the implications of that might be for U.S. sanctions and the U.S. dollar. Uh, that's a big topic and not one we're going to have a lot of answers on right now, but I think one that's worth flagging if, if anybody didn't see the coverage of that. So we're going to spend a few minutes talking about that. And then uh, in the lightning round, we're going to hit two topics. Uh, that we don't normally cover. We're going to talk about anti-boycott um, for a moment because a country, uh, 
just came off the list, the Treasury list, uh, which is always notable. And then we're going to talk about a new piece of legislation that was just introduced and which is quite sweeping, uh, targeting China. But one piece in particular um, potentially looks to expand CFIUS authorities. So we're going to touch on that very briefly as well. Uh, and that'll be our show for today. So before we get started on your birthday, Tim, any any thoughts, reflections, um, notes before we jump in? No, it was, you know, it was kind of a calm couple of weeks on the sanctions front, except for this Russia thing that, that we're going to talk about in a second. But, um, you know, that's that's good. I, I do think it's it, it is the beginning of a different era in terms of U.S. sanctions policy. And I think we'll probably get into that on the Russia discussion as well. That is just very different than what I think it would have been a year ago. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And um yeah, never come for long, it seems, is kind of the the theme that we seem to continue to come back to time and again, uh, and, and no exception in the past couple of weeks. Uh, so w- without, without further ado, let's jump right into topic number one, which is uh, the, big, the big action that happened last week. We're recording this on Monday, April 19. Uh, there was uh, it came, this sort of trickled out late on Wednesday that there was about to be a, a major sanctions action targeting Russia. We knew this was coming. We talked about this uh, on prior episodes. The National Security Advisor, Secretary of State, and others have been alluding to this and hinting at this coming for the past couple months. So, no surprise here. And in fact, what happened on Thursday was kind of a collection of activities, some of which were sanctions that were levied pursuant to existing authorities, including the election interference executive order, the cyber executive order, uh, the existing Crimea-related authorities. Uh, There were a number of designations that came out on Thursday related to that that were sort of timed to coincide with the big with the big ticket item, which is really what we want to focus on, which is the new executive order that President Biden issued relating to uh, and it, in fact, it, it, it has earned its own spot on OFAC's website as it's got its own page. It's the Russian Harmful Foreign Activities Sanctions. Um, and there's a, as we said, there's a new... three times fast. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, uh, the executive order uh, is, is styled as blocking property with respect to specified harmful foreign activities of the government of the Russian Federation. That is the, that is the pithy title that it has to date. Um, so what does this do exactly for anybody who has not been tracking this? So um, obviously it is, a, it is a big deal that there's a new executive order that's targeting Russia, uh, number one. I, I would say that one thing that's notable to me here at the outset is just thinking about the scope of this is, as we said, obviously there's a lot of other authorities that are out there relating to Russia already. There's the COTSA related authorities, there's uh, there's the Chemical and Biological Weapons Act, which we saw deployed obviously uh, two years ago for the first time, uh, really seriously targeting Russia. There's uh, the Ukraine, Crimea-related uh, authorities from 2014 and 15, primarily that uh, have been deployed pretty uh, regularly for the past several years. Um, but now, what we have with this executive order is is and and then of course there's the standalone cyber executive order and the and the election interference executive order, which are not specifically targeted at Russia, but obviously have been used uh, to target certain actors in Russia. So now we have an executive order that kind of wraps a lot of these things all together and allows the government and allows OFAC to go after um, a whole host of different 
malign activities that the Russian government is either engaging in itself or is uh, having proxies engage in on its behalf. And that includes election interference, cyber, malicious cyber activities, transnational corruption, assassin assassination, murder, uh, et cetera, sort of classic espionage activities like they have uh, engaged in uh, with respect to uh, Alexei Navalny and others in the past few years, notably destabilizing activities that are happening sort of around the world it is very broad. It allows the U.S. government to go after any number of these malign activities and actors who are engaged in them uh, in connection with these activities. Um, I, I will hit a couple of high points here and then throw it to Tim to give some initial reactions. I think the the headline the headlines for me were really um, you know as as is the case with many of the executive orders that have been issued recently, including Burma that we've talked about a lot, um, some of the Venezuelan executive orders, some of the other executive orders. Um, what the first category here um, is a is kind of a broad sectoral sweep, and it and it allows the U.S. government to designate and block the property of those persons who operate or have operated in the technology sector or the defense and related materiel sector of the Russian economy, um, or notably any other sector of the Russian economy as may be determined in the future. So that is a, uh, and there was an interesting FAQ that accompanied that, which says, you know, for those who aren't familiar with how the authorities work, this doesn't mean that any company or any entity that is operating in the technology sector of the Russian economy is automatically blocked. They have to be specifically identified, which is typically the way that this works. But um, be on alert that it is higher. It is now they are at higher risk of potentially being subject to sanctions in the future if they are operating in these sectors. And obviously. The defense sector is one that's been targeted in the past for the past several years, whether it be under Katsa 231 or Directive 3 under the Ukraine authorities. But um, this is now, I think, a new era, let's say, for sanctions targeting those sectors. And, and again, the technology sector, that is pretty broad. That is pretty broad um, and brings in potentially a lot of different actors and a lot of different companies that maybe haven't been targeted in the past. Um, the one other big piece here, and there's again, there's many aspects to this. We're not going to cover all of them today, or else this would be like a, a four-hour podcast. But um, the the one other aspect here that's that's worth mentioning is, I think, as I have already alluded to, there's a new directive that's been issued already, pursuant to um, in the new executive order. It comes under uh, section one a subpart four which is relating to um, political subdivisions, agencies, and instrumentalities of the Russian Federation, the government of the Russian Federation. Um, and this new Directive 1 uh, puts, uh, prohibits U.S. financial institutions from participating in the primary market for ruble or non-ruble denominated bonds of the Russian Central Bank, the National Wealth Fund, and the Ministry of Finance and lending ruble or non-ruble denominated funds to the same three entities. Now, I would note that under the CBW Act, there were already restrictions on U.S. banks with respect to those types of transactions when it came to non-ruble denominated actions in, in those areas. This has now expanded it to ruble denominated um, transactions in those areas. I would also note it only relates to the primary market, not the secondary market. 
Um, and, you know, by some estimations, I think U.S. financial institutions hold maybe a quarter roughly of the, the, the debt in these regards. And there's a wind down period. This is all going to become effective in mid-June. Uh, June 14th, I believe, is the date. And so, yeah, as of June 14th, this is all prohibited. So there'll be a lot of activity and a lot of scrambling in all likelihood in the next two months on this front to the extent that U.S. financial institutions still had dealings with and exposure to these types of uh, sovereign debt of Russia, um, although I suspect that um, it's going to have much broader implications than that as well. And and But, it, but again, no secondary market. Um, is the secondary market is not covered by this directive one. So that is sort of an, another area that has, you know, is open for future expansion. So, so let me, let me stop there. I think to me, those are kind of the biggest ticket items. There are a number of different aspects, again, as I said, that we may touch on in the course of our conversation that I haven't covered yet, but let me throw it to you, Tim, sort of what are your initial reactions to this uh, in terms of scope, scale, impact, um, as you read the executive order and as you read some of the, the initial guidance that OFAC put out on all of this last, last Thursday. So I'll, I'll just kind of tick off three quick thoughts that I had on this. And, and the first one I've already hinted at, which was that this does seem a fairly uh, moderated response to kind of a big issue. And the administration was definitely careful to say this may not be the only response. There may be other responses, certainly to the to the solar winds hacking, that we never learn about. But but I I think the contrast from the prior administration is pretty substantial here. I mean, first of all, we have a executive order targeting Russia, which is really didn't happen for the last four years. The main um, the main times that sanctions were imposed against Russia by the last administration was generally through legislation. It wasn't that they were choosing to expand or create new sanctions programs related to Russia. That's new, but I also think it's a, in many ways a different kind of sanctions program than the last administration created as well. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I think in the prior administration, and they, they, they deemed this, so I think it's fair to, to to talk about it in these terms, they talked about maximum pressure. And so when they were in a country for sanctions, they really were trying to expand the sanctions as broadly as possible. And certainly that did put pressure on governments that were targeted and countries that were targeted, but but sometimes it almost seemed to be pressure without kind of an end game. Um, it, it was it was interesting to me here that well I, and I'm going to get to this in kind of points two and three and, and I think you've already talked about it some already Brian that these these sanctions provisions are not small in the abstract because they have a lot of room to grow um, they're very targeted at this point it was not a huge expansion of the sanctions against Russia at least in the short term the, there weren't that many companies that went on the, the list immediately Directive One is relatively um, limited uh, in scope, as you just pointed out. So, so it was not a maximum pressure on Russia for these issues from, from the get-go. But, you know, kind of to get to my second and third points, I mean, my second point is really there is this room to grow because it, it targets the technology sector, which is, you know, huge. It targets the defense and material sector, which had also already been the target of of some rather expansive sanctions in Katza, but it's again, anyone that's operating in that sector in Russia is now at least 
subject to designation under this order. But I think the most important part is the catch-all provision of this phrase, which is, or any other sector. And we've seen, certainly in Venezuela, I think is a good example of this. That was the language that was used in some of the executive orders with respect to, to Venezuela. And that has grown relatively substantially. I mean, the, the biggest growth was when they targeted the Venezuelan oil sector, which wasn't listed in the original designation order, but was one one of the any other sectors. And when PETAVASA was put on the list as part of any other sector and the oil sector in Venezuela was targeted, the sanctions against Venezuela went from relatively small to relatively huge. And then they added other sectors in Venezuela as well. And so that does mean, this executive order does mean that there is a lot of room to grow. And that provision in particular is one that strikes me as, as one where there's a lot of potential expansion. And I guess my third kind of observation about, about these sanctions is that uh, the, the, there is a new directive. And I found the directive interesting because it is like the other sectoral sanctions directives in the sense that it targets one item of behavior really focused on debt or bonds from, from certain uh, governmental entities in Russia, um, and then leaves all other uh, conduct on the table. So it's a very limited restriction in terms of dealing with these governmental entities. But you know it's important in the sense that it does forbid certain types of new debt. The other part of the directive that I found interesting and kind of unique is that it targets U.S. financial institutions. So norm normally we're targeting U.S. persons in these directives. Um, the other directives and, and virtually all sanctions provisions really target U.S. persons, sometimes persons within, uh, you know, persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction, but just straight up targeting U.S. financial institutions as the, as the, as, as the, the named, um, the named prohibition or the named subject of the prohibition is relatively new. And I, and I think it's kind of interesting. It really just kind of does go straight to the point. I mean, we know that that OFAC and Treasury and the sanctions community really have focused most of these sanctions on the, the world financial community, but really U.S. financial institutions have always been the main target in terms of compliance. This one just spells it out and goes after U.S. financial institutions directly. I think that's both interesting and, and, and a bit unique. Yeah, I, I would just to follow on to one of the points you made. I, I mean, one of the one of the sort of big picture questions that I would have, which I think we don't have answers, we won't have answers to for some time, is given that this is a, a you know appears to be a more nuanced approach to how to deploy sanctions, and it's not it's sort of a it's a departure clearly from the maximum pressure tactics of the prior administration. Um, Yet it, it again the sort of the underpinnings of what has now been put in place could certainly be deployed quite broadly, and could be if if necessary or if deemed to be beneficial from a policy standpoint could be ratcheted up quite a bit and much more aggressively than has happened to date. Uh, and in keeping in mind that there's already a number of other things that were sort of predate this, right? Like the um, the expansion of the military and user rules that the BIS has put in place with that impact Russia and and again the CBW Act and some other things that have that did happen under the prior administration that are sort of already there. I think one one question for me or one sort of interesting thought exercise is uh, get to your point about what is the end game here? What's the goal, right? And if it's to impose costs on Russia for this type of behavior that is being called out in the in the executive order and all the surrounding statements, 
uh, how you know how how is that going to be measured? When is that going to be? Is that going to be deemed to be have been successful or to have moved the needle? And I, I think more to the point, when would we get to a place, if ever, perhaps that Russia becomes akin to a Venezuela in terms of the way that U.S. companies or maybe even other Western companies would look at it in terms of how risky it is to do business there from a U.S. sanctions standpoint, right? Um, you know, I think there's obviously the there's it's all it's all tiered in terms of how how risky these things are, and I think Russia has been clearly a tier below in terms of the risk that most companies, U.S. or otherwise, would ascribe to it in terms of doing business there, but now. I think there's a lot more food for thought in terms of how this could evolve and and what this really all means for the future and how do you rate that out from a risk standpoint depending on the type of business that you have and the type of connections that you have to Russia currently or or in the future how do you how do you how do you balance that how do you analyze that I think that's I think that is what in some ways this is designed to do is to make people pause whether it's US companies or non-US companies and sort of reevaluate that to some degree, to the extent that that hasn't been uh, prompted already by the actions that have come in the past few years. So I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but, it, but that I think is, is kind of a fascinating aspect of this from a deterrence and a compliance risk tolerance standpoint, sort of where does, where does this, how does this move the needle, if at all, for the way that companies are going to evaluate Russia? And I think we'll find out. I mean, I think right now it's it's not that different than it was two weeks ago with respect to Russia in one sense, and that is, Katza and the the previous admit, the sanctions imposed by the Obama administration created a theoretical framework of pretty extensive sanctions against Russia against Russia, but it, at least over the past four years, there really wasn't much enforcement of those sanctions, and so there really weren't a lot of people being put on lists. There wasn't a lot of aggressive enforcement action. The most the, the, the most serious enforcement action against Russia in the last four years really came out of the UK, not the US, which is, you know, not the normal case in terms of sanctions. And so so I, I, I do think that this adds one more relatively large structure to the framework of sanctions that are out there. And so if I'm thinking about doing business in Russia, I'm thinking that it is a relatively heavily sanctioned jurisdiction in, in theory. If the enforcement follows the the theory, then uh, it becomes a lot more like Venezuela. I think if the enforcement follows the practices of the last four years, it, it becomes a lot more like Belarus. I mean, I think that's really where we are. Is that you 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 could see a lot more hesitation about going into Russia if these sanctions expand, or if the sectors expand, or if there's a lot of designations. If there aren't, I think it's kind of just more of the same. Yeah, and obviously there's there's the other aspects of this, which are to what extent, and this is obviously something that's very difficult to measure, but to what extent do any of these increased tools and potential consequences have on the sort of core conduct that is actually being targeted here, which is the malicious cyber activity, election interference, uh, transnational corruption, et cetera, is, you know, will we see any change in behavior there with respect to either the Russian government or those who are sort of part of that network, so to speak, whether directly or indirectly, that obviously is something that's very difficult to assess. I think that's often the, you know, that's the stuff of intelligence community assessments to try to determine how much these types of activities are being uh, impacted by our 
you know, U.S. policy moves like this. Uh, and, and that's a kind of a much longer term issue and a much kind of lengthier uh, time horizon to sort of assess that. But I think that's the other, clearly the other piece here is that uh, it was, I think the administration felt that there was a, there was a gap in terms of the enforcement uh, tools that were at its disposal to be able to go after some of these um, activities. And I think from a sort of from a sanctions branding and marketing perspective to just come up with a new executive order and a new sort of program, essentially, that we you can package under the harmful foreign activities of the Russian government, that's kind of a useful, it's sort of a useful exercise to do, right? And to be able to, um, to, to term it that way. And Perhaps we'll see something like this for China at some point or other adversaries in in the future. I wouldn't be shocked, right? So, so from that perspective, I think there's there's some value in in that as well. Yeah, two quick thoughts on that. I mean, one is I I do think this is an example of what we were talking about in kind of the what is the Biden administration like to do likely to do um, type of discussion. These are essentially malign activities, but also human rights related. Um, far beyond the, the the previous sanctions program, which was all directed towards Ukraine, so so at least in theory, um, if if Russia had come to some sort of agreement with the world community about what's going on in Ukraine, those other sanctions would be lifted, and they really were at least in theory almost all related to the behavior in Ukraine. These sanctions are much different than that. I mean, they're really related to human rights issues. They're really related to election interference issues, related to cyber issues in a way that even if the Ukraine situation got completely resolved in a way that was satisfactory to everyone, this program would still exist to the extent that this sort of conduct still existed. So it is an example of kind of where we thought the Biden administration would go on these issues. Um, the other thing is that, you know, just before we started recording this morning, I, mean, I was looking at some some local sto- or some some international stories, and it, it appears that the Russian government um, is is moving Navalny into a hospital out of the prison where he was uh, engaging in a hunger strike, which, uh, you know, who, who knows if it's related to the announcement last night that the U.S. government made that if if Navalny were to die, that that would be a potential that would the U.S. would take that into account, and that there would be consequences, you know, and the consequences presumably would have come through this particular sanctions program. Um, who knows if that's related? But I have to say, I'm a little surprised that the Russian government backed down and moved Navalny, given that um, him engaging in a hunger strike seemed to be exactly this, what they had already tried to create on their own, and he was he was in their in their mindset. And I think that's almost sick to say this, but he was kind of doing their work for them. I'm right. surprised that he backed down. Yeah, it is interesting, and, and it'll be interesting to see how this develops over the course of the next several months. Uh, you know, for those also who are following this, there were a number of actions that were taken in connection with this uh, expelling some. Uh, the U.S. expelled some Russian diplomats. Russia expelled some U.S. diplomats. This is kind of the tit for tat that often happens when when these types of uh, you know shots across the bow are taken. So that's none of that is really surprising, uh, but yeah, I agree that the Navalny news is 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 interesting, and and so we'll have to see uh, if that what what sort of happens uh, sort of down the road in in that regard, and whether we we see more there. So uh, you know, look, there's a lot there's a lot more that's going to come in this area. I think we have not heard the last of this, and as as has been alluded to by the U.S. Um, 
you know, political leadership, there, there have been or will be additional actions and steps taken to sort of uh, impose costs in connection with some of the activities that are featured here in the executive order that we will likely never know about and will never see the light of day outside of, uh, you know, classified intel reports uh, that circulate within the U.S. government. So presumably a lot of that has either already happened or is about to happen imminently. And, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see what, what ends up, um, you know, how things progress. And interestingly, uh, this is maybe a good pivot point. So we will, we will keep our, a close watch on this. And, and to the point that we both featured uh, in our comments, you know, it'll be interesting to see how companies both in the U S and abroad are sort of taking this into account as they think about engaging in Russia generally as a market and, and, you know, whether this changes the calculation, at all at this point, or or it's people taking a wait and see to see how sort of aggressively this is going to be deployed. I think that'll time will tell with that a little bit. But um, an, another interesting sort of uh, adjacent point here is, and to get on to topic number two, transitioning to the JCPOA 2.0, Russia is obviously one of the players that's at the table to try to see if the US and Iran can get back on the same page and, and re-entry into the deal can be worked out. And and in some of the news articles that have come out in the last couple of weeks after the the big the big uh, um, development with the the attack on Natanz a couple about ten days ago, uh, the Russian representatives are kind of prominently featured in that. So keeping in mind that the US and Russia still do have to deal with each other, at least there to some degree, if not in many other contexts. And so that that also just makes the makes the the sort of the plot a little thicker in terms of how that can be navigated um, as as these tactics are are kind of playing out over the next few months. So with that, let me let me kick it to Tim to sort of transition to what's what's happening with JCPOA 2.0 after we we laid out the groundwork a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so that's an issue that we're obviously still watching closely, as we talked about in some of the previous episodes. Um, one of the Biden campaign uh, promises was that he was going to look to get back into the the JCPOA after the Trump administration unilaterally withdrew the United States from the the, the nuclear deal, and uh, and the that there are in that sense negotiations going on uh, in Vienna. They're indirect negotiations, but they are at least by the reports that are coming out making progress on the big issue, which is really who goes first since the U.S unilaterally withdrew. Iran thinks that the U.S. ought to go first. And that's actually the reason that the talks are indirect is that Iran takes the position that you, the U.S. is not party to the JCPOA, so it shouldn't be involved in talks about the JCPOA. So it's not really in the room at this point. Um, the U.S. perspective is that, that Iran is pretty far out of compliance with its nuclear obligations. And so Iran needs to come back into the compliance before the U.S., will lift the sanctions again that were lifted as part of the JCPOA. So that's the sticking point. They've been making relatively good progress from what we've we've heard, but there are still a lot of issues to work through, um, many of which were kind of placed in the way of the JCPOA after the U.S. withdrew. And I think that's a good context to view uh, last week's actions in, in Natanz. Natanz is one of the, the big uh, areas in which the the Iranians have engaged in in nuclear enrichment, one of their big nuclear facilities. Um, and last week, uh, the Natanz facility was hit with some very large attack uh, that apparently um, destroyed a lot of their electrical infrastructure. Um, 
news reports suggest, and I think the Israelis might have even claimed involvement in it, or at least uh, it, some some off the record or, or not for attribution sources have have acknowledged that the Israelis were involved in that attack. And and I think that it is viewed best in the context of kind of roadblocks to the JCPOA. I mean, President Trump was obviously an enemy to the JCPOA. He certainly hated that deal. I think he called it the worst deal ever signed. Um, the Israelis also, the Israeli government uh, has been a huge um, critic of the nuclear deal. And and I think that this attack, um, to the extent that Israel was involved, is, is kind of another impediment being kind of thrown in the way of two parties who both said that they want to reach an agreement, the U.S. current administration and Iran, for very different reasons, want to reach an agreement here. But the parties who don't want it to happen are trying to throw as many things in the way of it as they can. And this is just another one. And we saw that it had some effect. I mean, these Iranians almost immediately afterward announced that they were going to enrich uranium to, to 60%. I think that the JCPOA puts a limit of like 3.9% enrichment. And I think to get to a weapon, you need to get to about 90% enrichment. But the, the, the Iranians announced almost immediately afterwards that they've gone from, I think, 20%. So they were out of compliance, but they've gone up to 60 now, or at least claiming to go up to 60. Still, they, they're saying for civilian purposes but they are getting closer to that 90% level, um, or at least going to try to as a result of this, which also certainly makes it more difficult for the Biden administration to go back to the nuclear deal when Iran is getting even further out of compliance with its nuclear obligations. Yeah, I would just say a couple of quick comments on this. I mean, I think the big takeaway here is that this attack apparently has not derailed the indirect talks. And I think there was some fear for at least a day or two at the outset after this all came to light that that may be the case, and that doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, it is no surprise that Israel is going to do whatever they can to throw roadblocks up here as they are uh, perhaps the most vocal opponents of the deal, uh, perhaps outside of uh, certain some opponents here in the U.S., um, and have always maintained that it didn't go far enough and uh, it was a bad deal. And so to the extent that they're able from the outside to perhaps, uh, even if they can't derail the deal, perhaps to push the U.S. and others to uh, expand the deal in a manner that would be more to their aligned with their interests, then obviously they're going to do what they can to make that happen. The other, the other thing that I would say that's kind of interesting to keep an eye on here is to the extent that What's happening now is a bit of a game of chicken, as Tim described, which is who's going to go first? Is the U.S. going to agree to lift certain sanctions, presumably the sanctions that have been were heaped on after um, November 4, 2018, all of the sort of additional sanctions that came on that were not in existence prior to the JCPOA, uh, the additive sanctions? Uh, is the U.S. going to agree to that? Is Iran going to agree to get back in compliance? This obviously is pushing... If, if Iran's claims are to be believed that they're at 60% enrichment or they're going to enrich at 60%, then that obviously puts them further out of compliance in some ways. And it's it's a game of kind of threading that needle, which is, you know, Iran, I'm sure, wants to continue to make it known that they're not going to easily uh, just roll over and come back to the deal. Uh, and to, from the U.S. perspective, how far out of compliance they get is potentially going to impact how politically palatable or unpalatable this is for the U.S. to engage in to get back into the deal. So 
it is a very sort of you know precarious situation at the moment in terms of both sides kind of balancing all of that on the outside, but at the same time being committed to and I think understanding that uh, it is in their best interest in all likelihood to get back to the deal and to get back into compliance, how that comes about and what that looks like is obviously what the talks are all about right now. And I think there's uh, a lot of, there has been, and we, I think are of this mind that this is going to take a while. I don't, I don't think that this is a matter of a few days or weeks. This could take a few months. Um, I guess in theory, they could come up with a high level framework that could be hammered out relatively quickly. But again, to, to actually get, get things you know, moving and, and to coordinate what the exchange of actions is going to be to result in everybody being back as part of the deal, I think is going to take a while to coordinate because it is going to be very complicated. And perhaps this makes it slightly more complicated. I, I don't know, but this was always going to be a bit of an uphill battle. But at the end of the day, if the will is there, I think on the part of the two key parties, then this will probably happen at some point. And whatever Israel does or anybody else does is perhaps not going to be enough. But, you know, you never know. And we'll see how far how far from that kind of threading the needle lane this pushes things or if anything else were to happen subsequently that could make it more difficult. We'll see. But for now, it looks like bottom line is the indirect talks are continuing and uh, no reason yet to think that that is going to be derailed or that it's less likely that we will get to a point perhaps in the next couple months where we will have some framework for what a JCPOA 2.0 might look like. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the only thing that I would lead with is just kind of one of the points you just made, Brian, which is it, it does surprise me how effective it can be to throw up these sorts of roadblocks in terms of preventing a deal that both parties to the, to, to the deal want and both parties to the deal know that these are roadblocks that are kind of injected by people who don't want the deal to take place. So it's not and like- are, any- And are predi- they're sort of predictably unpredictable, right? Like it's yes. sort of the idea that the that the Israelis are potentially, and again, I'm saying this because I, I believe this is on the record from, or at least it's been attributed to US Intel that they believe Israel did this. And as Tim said, I believe it's been on background claimed credit for by the Israelis. Um, it's sort of- it's it's everybody knew that they were going to try to inject some chaos into this to try to prevent this or make it harder. And, and here we are a week after the announcement, and they've already done it. Right. And it really does make it harder. I mean, and that's the same thing with at the end of the Trump administration, when almost every day they were coming out with a new sanction against Iran and they had a new sanctions program only a few months before they were out of office that was pretty significant in terms of the Iranian financial sector. And, and yet, you know, with everyone knowing all they're trying to do is just kind of make trouble for a deal that the parties sitting down for the deal want to have happen. That stuff has worked. I mean, it's made it way more complicated already. As you said, Brian, there was a lot of fear that the, that because of this attack that the Iranians were just going to walk away from the, the deal entirely after this, that the, the talks were going to completely break down. So it's just kind of amazing to me that despite the fact that everybody knows what's happening and everybody knows that you know that that this is that somebody's actually trying to bust up the talks and they're doing it for exactly that reason that it that it's it either comes close to succeeding and certainly slows things down and sometimes very substantially yeah so we'll keep an eye on that but for now things are continuing to 
press forward on that front. Uh, and obviously that's one we'll, we'll circle back to in the future. Uh, so with that, let's, let's go to our final topic, only three topics for today in the main portion, uh, which is China's digital currency. Uh, and this, this one's fascinating. And one, again, I don't think we have any real answers on this at the moment, but I think it is certainly worth watching because as a long-term, uh, you know, disruptive influence on both the power of the U.S. dollar and the power of U.S. sanctions. I think this is very, very high on the list. And and so, for those who are not aware, I would recommend to anybody out there who's interested in this topic to to find out to to seek out the Wall Street Journal article on this that ran a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a very comprehensive uh, sort of rundown of what China has been doing in terms of. Uh, basically standing up digital a digital currency in in China and to and to just for those who are not following this this is not China's version of Bitcoin or ethereum or, or one of these types of um, you know virtual currencies cryptocurrencies that you may think of in the in the in top of mind this is China's central bank that is uh, going to be uh, releasing, uh, a digital version of the yuan for into the Chinese economy, and they have had actually a pilot program that they um, that they have been doing for the past, I think, year or so, um, where they've made this digital currency available to those in China to use. And for anybody who's either listening China, you know this very well, or anybody who's ever traveled to China knows this very well. Everything is already highly digital in China already with respect to payments and the way that payments for goods and services work. And that's partially attributable to um, WeChat Pay and, and Alipay and, and apps of that sort. Um, and, and tied into that is the fact that the government is already has like a lot of insight and a lot of transparency into all of those because they're they're all my understanding is it's all sort of reported and flows back to them in any event this would in some ways it is sort of the antithesis of what bitcoin and and the other kind of original cryptocurrencies were meant to provide which is anonymity on the blockchain this is sort of the opposite of that because china's central bank would have full transparency into how this is this digital currency is being used um and obviously i think the the idea here is that it would first roll out in china um but i think there are certainly indications that the idea is that this would be expanded over time uh to a uh, you know cr to be cr a cross-border currency that would be used and i think the uh, there was, there's in the, I believe it's in the Wall Street Journal article. This was referenced, which is, you know, the Beijing Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics are coming up next year, and there's some plan that they would um, provide this digital currency to the, to the, the athletes that would be coming to, as a way to sort of, um, I mean, I don't want to, I'm gonna, this is awful to use this analogy, but this is sort of a, uh, it's sort of a free sample to get them hooked uh, in some ways, and and that they would perhaps take it back to their all corners of the globe and want to continue to use the digital yuan. And that might be a way to sort of spread the gospel of this and the benefits of this. So it seems that that is part of the plans. I would imagine that there will be some sort of Intel briefing for us athletes as to why they are not to accept digital yuan when they go to Beijing next uh, winter. But in any event, um, I think the long, the big picture goal here certainly i think is to undercut the supremacy of the us dollar and to get the the yuan closer to being an equal and perhaps even 
you know, on equal footing or even surpass it at some point. Um, and to, you know, really cut into both the U.S. dollar's role as the global reserve currency uh, and by extension to really cut into the levers that the U.S. has with respect to how it deploys sanctions. Because as we've talked about and as we talk about all the time, it all comes down to that. It all comes down to the U.S. dollar and the U.S. financial system as the centerpiece of the global financial system. That is why the leverage is there. And that is why the the choice to abide by U.S. wishes and U.S. sanctions or run the risk of being cut off is such a... Um, is such a difficult choice for, or really it's, and oftentimes is a no brainer for companies around the world is they don't want to even run the risk that that could happen. And clearly this is designed, I think at maybe it's not even five years from now, maybe it's 10 years from now or 15 years from now or 20 years from now that that may happen. And I would add, and just to, just to situate you, one of the numbers that I saw was Currently, when you look at foreign exchange trades, almost 90% of those are done in U.S. dollars right now. Less than 5% are done in RMB or yuan. So it is a huge discrepancy in terms of the supremacy of the dollar versus certainly Chinese currency or any other currency. Um, and at the same time, Janet Yellen and um, Jerome Powell, the incoming chairman, the new chairman of the Fed, um, they have said on the record at, at their confirmation hearings and, and otherwise that this is the, you know, the idea of the rise of a digital yuan and looking at whether the, you know, we could have a digital dollar or something along those lines is something that they're going to be investing uh, a lot of research and time and energy into in part because we're already behind, quite frankly, we're already behind in the U.S. on this score. And I think there's a lot of fear that if we don't expedite uh, our own um, efforts to modernize the dollar, let's say, as a sort of general matter, we are going to be left uh, behind, and that China has first mover advantage here, as a, as it's um, you know already ready to roll this out in a in a much more comprehensive way. So let me pause there. Again, this is sort of a big picture, long term existential threat, quite frankly, to the U.S. dollar and to U.S. sanctions. So let me throw that to you, Tim. What are your sort of thoughts having read this and, and thinking about this a little bit? Pure genius. I mean, that is <laughs> it really, it's pure genius. And, and you know, it, depending upon your perspective, you might say pure evil genius, but but it, it really accomplishes two things that have been kind of critical to Chinese policy. I mean, first is it's a massive data collection device. So, so I actually was a little bit surprised to read some of the reports about how China, the Chinese government thinks that both WeChat and Alipay were not giving China's government sufficient insight into financial tr transactions, that they thought that that was kind of an impediment into their visibility into those transactions. And at least some of the reports linked um, Jack Ma's detention to that issue or to his, to, to, to the fact that that Alipay was not giving the Chinese government sufficient insight into these transactions. This fixes that uh, to it puts the government right into every financial transaction um, to the extent that they that the Chinese government can get people to start using the the digital digital RMB or digital yuan. So so that from a just a data collection device and an insight device and an, and a getting in the tent device to all financial transactions. I mean, one of the articles talked about how, you know, from a human rights perspective, that somebody who was seen as kind of a protester, the Chinese government could could monitor every 
cup of coffee that that person bought with somebody else just to make sure that they knew every person that they were meeting with. And I'm not totally convinced of that because I'm not sure that you, if you pay in digital one, that you would have to list the names of all the people that you're in the coffee shop with. But it, it does go pretty far and it does take out the middleman. So to the extent that they weren't getting insight before, they de definitely would get insight now. And so from the data collection perspective, it's genius. The other thing that is genius is that it, is that the U.S. Um, financial system is the premise of all U.S. sanctions. It is the it, it's the the superiority of that system is is really the um, is really the the big advantage that the U.S. has taken advantage of in the sanctions context. It, it's certainly not in jeopardy now, but to the extent we're five, six, seven years behind, and the digital currency is the future, if China really beats us to the punch and gets gets countries around the world to start using the Chinese financial system as the main financial system for digital transactions, given that that's almost certainly the future, uh, it really does seem like that could create enough of a dent in the U.S. financial system in the long run to um, both weaken sanctions, but also weaken the U.S. global financial position because the U.S. is, you know, part of part of the, the, the reason that the U.S. financial system's um, lead around the world in terms of transactions has been helpful to the U.S. is that it has allowed it to maintain a sanctions foreign policy that is effective. But that's only one example of the many thing, many advantages that having the, the world's strongest U.S. financial system has given the U.S. And to the extent China can make a dent in that or more by beating us by a lot to digital currencies, that would be a big deal. Yeah, I think just a few comments to respond to to your points, which I think are very good ones. So I do think we're on the verge of sort of a, ver a digital currency arms race almost in this respect. I mean, the, the, again, it's been this has been widely reported, but in this article, there's a lot of talk of how many governments around the world are looking to do the same thing. Uh, as China is doing now. And so I think we're just going to see more and more of this. Obviously, China's uh, strength as a global economic power makes this more notable than perhaps smaller uh, governments or smaller economies trying to do this around the world. Um, number two is exactly Tim's point, which is just from the sanctions perspective, I think this no doubt would threaten the leverage that the U.S. government has with respect to sanctions. The the reporting, at least on this, and I would not be surprised, obviously, if this is the case, is that this would all operate outside of outside of the SWIFT system. So there would be no visibility for the U.S. at all into any of these um, types of transactions. Um, I, you know, so that is a would be sort of a big black hole. Um, obviously, that sort of uh, black hole is already started with respect to um the rise of digital currencies that are happening in the private sector. And so if it were to happen organized under the influence of the Chinese government, that would be even a bigger, quite frankly, national security threat to the US. And so I think that's the way it's being treated and will be treated going forward. And and then my, my third point is, I would not be surprised if, if at some point we see that US persons are prohibited from dealing in or using digital yuan i would not be surprised if you know obviously we saw for very different reasons uh the petro in venezuela when that was being stood up it was there was um that there was an executive order that targeted that and and put it off limits for us persons for the data privacy data collection 
reasons that Tim just cited, I would imagine that this is just a nightmare of epic proportions for the U.S. government to think about U.S. persons having uh, the Chinese central bank basically have full access to how it is using their currency. So um, to track and trace and and collect and run big data analytics against. And so I would not be surprised if this does become more widely accepted and used in the coming years if we see something like that, that would essentially just ban U.S. persons from being able to use this altogether. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see that as well, though I'm not sure it's, it would be the, the greatest solution to take the U.S. completely out of that game. I mean, what you would prefer is that um, they don't have to ban it because we have a better system, and so nobody wants to use it as opposed to forbidding people from using it. But I, I agree with you. Uh, yeah, I think I fair enough. I think if I think we're going to see both. I think we're going to see the U.S. Tr trying to really turbocharge its efforts to to look at what a digital dollar could look like at some point, uh, and but I think as a defensive measure for the data privacy. And data security reasons that you cited, I think we we might see we might see something like that. I should add as one last note here before we uh, wrap up, it does not sound like the expected pace of rollout here is going. It's not like a year from now, the yuan is going to be entirely digital, or the all of China's economy is going to be working off of the digital yuan. This is it seems like this is they're trying to sort of do this gradually over time and and it's not even really an expansion from its monetary policy it's kind of a one for one replacement of paper paper money for digital money and that's how they're going to sort of take take certain paper money out of circulation and coins out of circulation and and substitute the digital yuan so I don't, I don't expect, and we don't expect that this is, you know, a year from now or two years from now, kind of an issue where there's going to be drastic change. But I think this is a, this is definitely an area to keep a close watch on because this is going to be a fascinating topic uh, and issue to to focus on over the course of the next, again, five to ten years plus, as as this all plays out and as we see how the U.S. responds and and how China, how successful China is, quite frankly, in doing this both domestically and then spreading it around the world and in, in, in typical fashion, I think, to lesser developed economies in all likelihood in the first instance, whether that be in Asia or Africa or Latin America or other places where they're going to be more than happy, perhaps, to have uh, to have the the increased access to liquidity and, and funds and um, China's uh, and all the strings that go along with it from from China's perspective. So that'll be fascinating to see. But I think uh, we, we did want to flag this at this point, because th this is a big one, and this could this could be this could put us out of business on embargoed eventually. But it, it'll be uh, I think there's some time before that'll happen. But uh, one one to watch closely for sure. So with that, I think that wraps up the main portion of the program for today. Uh, only the three topics, and then we're just going to hit two topics, th sort of outlier topics, topics we don't get to talk about too often: boy the anti boycott laws and. Cepheus uh, to wrap up, and so with that, I'm going to pause for the lightning round sign effect, and I'm going to throw it to Tim to talk about a recent, pretty significant development actually in the anti-boycott landscape uh, that just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah, so uh, 
you know, let's start with anti-boycott because we don't talk about anti-boycott much. So let's give a little bit of background. So back in the 1970s, uh, while uh, the, the Arab world and Israel were engaged in sometimes a military conflict, sometimes a Cold War, um, the Arab League started a boycott of Israel. Some would call it a secondary sanction of Israel, where the Arab League basically said, we're going to have um, we're going to create sanctions that try to isolate Israel, and we're going to apply them extraterritorially. The U.S., in response, passed two laws that uh, what they call anti-boycott laws that were designed to, um, to, to, to discourage and to essentially prohibit U.S. persons from participating in what, what the U.S. viewed as an illegal boycott. So these were laws that were... Uh, created to stop essentially or to to keep US persons out of the Arab League boycott of Israel. There's two components to these laws. One is a is a commerce department program that contains a series of prohibitions so it it does make it illegal to agree with um, to agree to comply with the Arab League boycott in certain ways. It also ha it contains some anti-discrimination provisions so uh, that that prohibit certain types of discrimination against um, mostly mostly Israelis and, and and people on the basis of of religion. Uh, on the other hand, the law the, the the language is much broader than that, so they they do go further than that. And then there's another set of uh, set of restrictions that are in the tax code. Um, so they're tr they're enforced by the Treasury Department, and what the that part of the anti-boycott uh, laws is designed to do is to impose tax consequences against companies that agree to participate in the in the boycott. So they're not prohibitions per se, but they are um, there if if you do if a company does engage in uh, in the boycott in certain ways, it can uh, get less favorable tax treatment. It can get tax penalties. And both of these laws also have reporting provisions. So if you receive a request to participate in a boycott, you've got to either, depending upon the type of request, disclose it to the Commerce Department, disclose it to the Treasury Department, and sometimes you have to disclose to both departments. So that's the anti-boycott law. Um, the reason that I kind of gave this big background is that, for the most part, the anti-boycott law has really only applied to the Arab League boycott. And in fact, that that is so expressed that in the Treasury um, side of the law, they have a list of countries that uh, that that where where those tax penalties can can uh, apply. And so, if you're doing business in, in a company that's doing a U.S. company that's doing business in those countries, um, that is where the tax consequences can come in if you agree to participate in a boycott. A few months ago, probably I guess in the, near the end of the Trump administration, the UAE. Uh, made peace with Israel. And what that consisted of, in part, was repealing laws that required its citizens to boycott Israel. And so many of the Arab states have those sorts of laws. But when they when they sign peace treaties with, with Israel, part of the peace treaty is often to lift those sort of boycott laws. And the UAE did this about six months ago. And recently, um, the Treasury took the UAE off of its list of boycotting countries, which means that, that if you're doing business in the UAE, um, the, the, the risk of boycott issues has gotten a lot smaller. It hasn't gone to zero because the commerce side of the equation really doesn't require that you be in a particular country. It's written in kind of a more neutral language. And so there is still some risk. Although the, the classic situation where this comes up is where a country, you're doing business in a country where the Arab League boycott is part of their laws, 
and they ask you to sign a clause that says that you will comply with all laws of the country. Now, that is a complicated question as to whether that's an anti-boycott request, whether that would violate the boycott. But in some instances, agreeing to comply with the laws of a country that has boycott laws would constitute an, an illegal agreement to comply with the boycott or, it's, or at least a reportable uh, event of a request to comply with the boycott. And so I think that these peace treaties with Israel, I mean, from an anti-boycott pers perspective, that is one pretty uh, direct consequence. And here it was direct enough that the UAE was moved from the treasury list. So we thought we would pause for that sort of anti-boycott moment just to kind of note that and, and bring boycott into the embargo. Yeah. yeah, we don't. So, I mean, truthfully, we, we get anti-boycott questions quite frequently. And I think for any companies that that have business in that part of the world, obviously, you're well aware of these obligations. But I do think it's a, it is a lesser known corner of the, the export and trade uh, sort of uh, regulatory regime for those who are perhaps not as familiar with it. So the only the only two things I would add to what Tim just said um, is is sort of exactly what Tim highlighted, which is the idea that, and I think this is where some there is some confusion from time to time because Treasury has a list, Commerce has no list, so there is no there is no specified comp countries where you are at risk or not at risk. Theoretically, you could get a boycott request anywhere around the world, and we've gotten questions from some in some odd places, quite frankly, um, all over the world. And and so this does not change that at all. It does, I think, as a practical matter, likely decrease that risk in the UAE, but it doesn't erase it altogether. And then the second is exactly what Tim just said about reporting requirements, which I think this is where a lot of companies get tripped up, which is they don't have mechanisms in place to be able to identify those uh, requests that are reportable. And we have seen over time companies get, get tripped up on that either, uh, you know, at, at much later in time, they realize they had reportable um, requests that come up and, and then uh, they have to you know, go to the Commerce Department uh, or perhaps to, to the IRS to report those, you know, much later in time. Uh, you know, only willful violations are criminally um make you criminally liable under the anti-boycott laws. But but again, you can still be assessed fines, penalties, et cetera, if you're not on top of uh, those obligations and don't have a, a compliance procedure in place to be identifying them, modifying them if necessary, and reporting them uh, if, if they are covered by the various uh, regimes. So we just thought it's a good a good chance to touch on that briefly. UAE obviously being a pretty um, you know substantial economic player in the region. The fact that they are now no longer on the boycott list on the IRS side that's a, a pretty big deal. Um, and the fact that they have reconciled with with Israel uh, and and those laws have now the boycott laws have now been taken off the books is a pretty big deal. So we did just want to flag that quickly um, for our purposes today. And with that, let us pivot to the second and final topic in the lightning round, which is a CFIUS-related topic. So just recently, uh, there was a new bill introduced, which is the Strategic Competition Act of 2021, which is a sweeping bill that comes out of uh, Senate Foreign Relations, and it is targeted very broadly at um, China and at um countering a lot of the things with respect to China that we talk about all the time and it's a it's a 200 plus page bill and we're not going to get in we're not going to wade into sort of all aspects of that at the at the moment but one aspect of it that we did want to touch on would be a potential 
change and expansion of uh, CFIUS authority. So uh, recall, as we have touched on a few different times in the in the past year plus, that um, with uh, FIRMA, the, the big uh, expansion of CFIUS authority that was enacted in 2018, that just the regs were finalized in the beginning of 2020, um, the idea of what is covered a covered transaction under CFIUS authority has been broadened pretty substantially um, and well beyond what was the traditional purview of CFIUS to just look at MNIA activity. And what the at least the 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 portion of the Strategic Competition Act that we want to focus on for the moment um, would would seek to broaden it even further in an in sort of an interesting way, which is it would relate to and it would expand the definition of covered transactions relating to primarily uh, sort of two, two areas, which is um, either gifts to or contracts with institutions of higher education by foreign persons that exceed a certain dollar amount. Um, the dollar amount that's identified here is a million dollars, whether in one, um, in one fell swoop or over a period of two years. And in particular, they're tying those types of gifts or contracts to um, anything connected to R&D relating to critical technologies, and in particular, um, the availability of material non-public information to these foreign persons who would make such gifts or enter into such contracts um, with such uh, institutes of higher education. There's also a provision that would, um, that would target restricted or conditional gifts that would meet certain definitional parameters that would convey control as well for such persons if they were to provide them to um, to these institutes of higher education. And so we wanted to flag this just primarily because I think this tells us a couple different things. Number one, um, this is sort of an interesting uh, gap perhaps in the in the existing CFIUS authorities or generally in the in the US regulatory authorities um, that is just not um, that we don't have the US does not have the ability to target right now. Um, there are lots of strings that go along with uh, receiving federal funding at universities and other institutes of higher education that allow the US government to sort of have um, uh, a lot of insight into what's going on there to perhaps pursue fraudulent or other uh, activities that are uh, relating to that funding and what is being done with it. But I think this is this is treating the, again, a, a new kind of vector of influence on behalf of foreign persons, most notably, of course, China, um, with respect to uh, R&D that is happening on critical technologies at U.S. universities. And so I think it's an interesting insight that this is perhaps identified or has been identified as a, as a gap and as a vulnerability point. Um, if now I don't want to get too much into the mechanics of how any of this is work because it's very preliminary. It could change. The idea is that there would be a pilot program here it would be in place for a little over 18 months. And, and that would sort of be the initial run to see how, um, this would all go. There's also some, uh, there's also, it would call for, uh, some research and reporting to Congress on this, um, on behalf of, uh, CFIUS and and so I think there's a lot um, you know there's a lot of unknowns here but I think we just, just want to flag this as a potential um, item to keep your eye on because you know we've obviously just had a pretty drastic expansion of CFIUS authority Congress is perhaps not satisfied that we've gone far enough 
And so this is one area um, where we've seen more. And we do from time to time see this bubble up in other legislative packages where there's talk of, of expanding um, cover, the definition of covered transactions in a variety of ways or expanding CFIUS authorities in a variety of ways. This struck me personally as one that seems fairly plausible that we could get something resembling this uh, passed and adopted at some point, uh, perhaps this year. So I, again, just want to just want to throw that out there and make people aware of that for those who aren't tracking this one as closely. And I'll throw it to Tim for any quick thoughts on that. Yeah, two quick thoughts. I mean, first, I, I do think that that this is a plausible outcome of this bill in the sense that there's already uh, an FBI enforcement effort that has really targeted what they view as kind of Chinese government infiltrations into R and D in various universities around the country. There have been some relatively high profile criminal prosecutions that that focus on um, what the U.S. views as U.S. scientists collaborating with the Chinese government, usually through grants, but to provide information and research that really, from the U.S. perspective, shouldn't be going back to China, but is secretly both funded and then monitored by the Chinese government. So the idea that there would be a more um, comprehensive and kind of targeted provision of CFIUS that's right at this issue, I think it could easily come. Now, whether it comes in this law, I mean, this is an extremely broad set of, you know, blueprint as to what certain senators think the U.S. ought to be doing just generally with respect to global competition. And what I was really hoping we were going to talk about today was Section 285, the Arctic Diplomacy section of this um, legislation, because I really do think that um, taking back the Arctic really ought to be the primary focus of U.S. foreign policy, because I think that the Arctic is probably the most, most it, it's, it, whoever loses the Arctic really loses the world. And I think that Section 285, if that doesn't become law, I'm going to be very upset. Tim, you need to bite your tongue on that and not uh, and not uh, be, not be not be so tongue in cheek about the import the strategic importance of the Arctic. But no, I think your point about um, how this is of a piece with the sort of strategic and enforcement efforts that are already well underway to uh, target U- U.S. universities that are perhaps have been susceptible to to this type of influence mainly from China, uh, agree completely. And so it is it, it, it is highly plausible to me that some form of this could get passed at some point, um, whether it's part of this law is a whole nother matter. Whether we see the Arctic as part of this law is a whole nother matter. But I do think that it is one to watch. And uh, whether it bubbles up, whether it stays part of this or it bubbles up in some other form or fashion, we'll, we'll be keeping our eye on this and, and we'll certainly... Um, bring that up again on a, on a later episode. So, uh, and so with that, I think we are now officially done for Tim's birthday episode of, uh, embargoed, uh, and, uh, any, any final thoughts, any, you have a, uh, you have a valedictory here on your birthday that you'd like to offer before we wrap up for the week. <laughs> no real valedictory. I do. I, I, I was tongue in cheek about the Arctic, but I, I don't mean to, to offend any of our listeners in the Arctic. So, so, um, that it's important, um, might not be worth the 27 pages of legislative text that is in the, the draft bill at this point, but, but I, I, I take their point that, that we should. <laughs> yes. We don't mean to make light. We take our, we are, um, 
I guess a little levity is good given what we do day in, day out, and especially the trying times that we now find ourselves in uh, sort of day to day. So um, it, it, for any of you Arctic listeners out there, we, we humbly apologize if, if we've offended anybody out there. Um, so with that, I think we will wrap up for the week. Uh, thank you as always for joining us. We, we appreciate it. We appreciate the support, the comments, the feedback. Um, and we will be back again in May with our next episode. This will be up. Um, this will be up sort of the later part of this week uh, and we will be back in early May for our next episode. We will see uh, what the sanctions gods have in store for us in the next couple of weeks and what may uh, rain down <laughs> unexpectedly uh, as, as always seems to be the case uh, in the meantime. But for the time being, thank you again uh, and uh, to everybody out there, stay safe. Keep your masks on, get your shots, uh, and if you're in the U.S. especially, and um, stay sanctions-free. We'll see you next time. Stay sanctions-free, everybody, and, and get your jabs. Yes, as soon as possible. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Mm-hmm.